This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. There's never been a better time to be a salesperson or a success-minded individual in human history. We now have in our hands more tools, more technology, and more insight available to us than ever before. I'm proud to announce our new sponsor for this episode of In the Arena, Jeffrey Gittimer and Gittimer Gold Webinars, The Year of the Sale. And what is The Year of the Sale and Gittimer Gold Webinars? Here's what you're going to get. You're going to get 12 webinars. You're going to get a full year of personal and professional development for sales professionals and, I would argue, success-minded individuals. It begins with webinar one, the new sale. And I'm only going to touch on this one because it's so important. It's Gittimer giving you his very best ideas on what's now, what's new, what's next, how are sales being made, and how are we going to make sales over the next decade. And this is just the greatest building block, cornerstone content for what follows. And with that, you're going to get content on following up. You're going to get content on cold calling. You're going to get content on social selling, relationships, Managing millennials, you're going to get content on how to be a trusted advisor. We use those words, but nobody tells you what you're supposed to do to be that trusted advisor. You're also going to get some ideas about differentiation that come from Gittimer, who is somebody who's very, very creative in this space and has differentiated himself amazingly in this market. I would argue perhaps the best in the market when it comes to differentiating and brand building. You're also going to get a bonus webinar called Dominate 2016. And this is not just sales content. This is who do you need to be and what do you need to do if you're really going to win in this year. And this is content that will help you succeed every year. So you go to jeffreygittimer.com forward slash gold. You'll also find this in the show notes. And you pay monthly or you pay annually. If you pay monthly, it's 79 bucks a month for 12 webinars. You're making a 12-month commitment. And if you pay for the whole year at once, it's $500. You're going to save some money there. You're going to get exclusive access to a Facebook group, and you are going to develop yourself personally and professionally. But wait, there is more. If you use the word Anthony as the code when you sign up, you're going to get a massive discount on either one of these programs. So go out and visit my friend Jeffrey Gittimer at jeffreygittimer.com forward slash gold. Check out the webinars. Do invest in your personal and professional development. It's so important. You are the only asset that you have. You're the only resource that you have. And the bigger and stronger that resource and asset is for you, the more success you're going to have. Go check it out. Gittimer Gold, jeffreygittimer.com forward slash gold. When you get there, tell Git that Anthony sent you. When I first came across Jay Bear, I found his show. It was a YouTube show called Jay Today, and it was Jay talking directly into an iPhone for three or four minutes, always about social. So I kind of 
put him in this box of one of the social guys that talks about social media. And in fact, he has a consulting firm called Convince and Convert, and they work with some of the leading brands, and they deal with online customer service and customer experience, and social is a part of that. So I sort of missed the point about what Jay was doing until he had a book that he wrote called Hug Your Haters that caught my attention. And it caught my attention because of the word haters. And it's interesting, if you write a blog post, if you publish, if you create on the internet, you're going to find a way to have haters. And I thought that's the direction that the book went, but it's not. It's a book about customer service and the massive gap between how we perceive we're performing when it comes to taking care of customers and how they think we're performing. And the gap is enormous, as you're going to hear on this interview with Jay. Jay is another Midwestern guy from Indiana, which means he's smart and he's thoughtful and he's hardworking and he's also nice because that's what we people in the Midwest are like. And you're going to love this interview with him. I give you a deep dive. I give him some really good questions to help you get the content of the book out in a way that's actionable. And you're still going to want to go pick up Hug Your Haters if you have any role in client retention or customer service or customer experience. This is great content. And again, you know that I like things that are recipes. You know that I like things that if you put it in your hands, you can go take action on immediately. And that is this book. So this is my new friend from Indiana, Jay Bear from Convince and Convert and jbear.com in the arena, hugging your haters. Hey, Jay, how are you? I am loving life and thankful to be here. And another Midwestern guy. So you got an Ohio guy and an Indiana guy. So we're taking over. This is maybe the first time this has ever happened. I always end up (laughs) with somebody in New York or something like that. San Francisco, Austin. Yeah. (laughs) Somewhere else. First, I want to deal with the biggest disappointment I've had with you personally, and it was the ending of the Jay Today Show, Uh, which I watched religiously. Why did you stop? Is there a chance that you're bringing it back? And to me, I'm looking at it going, that content, you could repurpose it a whole bunch of ways. Yeah, thank you very much. It's nice to hear. So I I did, I don't know, 100 and something episodes, 150, something like that. And I did three or four shows a week, three minutes per episode. And I just shot it on my iPhone, wherever I happen to be around the world. And just kind of what, you know, what am I thinking today about marketing or business or life? And we actually did repurpose a ton of it. In fact, that was one of the reasons why we pioneered the show. It taught my team and I a lot of really valuable lessons that we've now subsequently taught a lot of corporate clients about content repackaging and repurposing. So we would take the three-minute video, originally was on YouTube, and then we'd take it and make it a video podcast and an audio podcast. Then we would put it on Facebook. Then we put it on the corporate Facebook page. Then we would transcribe it, make it a blog post, transcribe it again, or rework it a little bit, put it on Medium, rework it again, put it on LinkedIn, and then put it in our email newsletter. So every three-minute video became nine pieces of content which is an incredibly efficient way to create content. So we learned a lot of lessons there. But it got to the point where I sort of felt like every time I had to do it, which again, three or four times a week, it was one of those like, oh man, I got to shoot another episode. And that's not a great way to create content, right? When it feels like a chore, you're not going to do your best work. And so I set it aside. And part of the reasons I set it aside because I had to really focus mentally on the new book and, and getting that written. And so 
now that the book is out, I may actually bring it back. I've been thinking about it, uh, maybe do it in a different format. I've actually thought about doing it on Snapchat because it's a very, you know, it's, it's a kind of a format where you could really do that kind of a show. It's just much harder to repurpose it because of the way Snapchat works technically. Yeah, that's what I thought. It doesn't look like Snapchat's really enabling that yet. And I keep seeing, this is not on my list of questions for you. I just keep seeing this big push for Snapchat for B2B and I'm still skeptical. I mean, the audience, audience acquisition is so tricky there. It's a hard place to reach a lot of people who are, who are the people that you need to reach, right? In B2B, it's, it's not about numbers. It's about concentration, yeah. right? It, it's, about, it's about reaching the 15 right people or the 200 right people, not 20,000 people who are marginally right, like it sometimes is for B2C. And Snapchat is, is a little tricky for that now. But that's partially because what you might consider to be the right people in B2B largely aren't on Snapchat. But once they are, well, then, you know, a whole different, whole different value proposition. Yeah, that's uh, that's it. I think that it's still, you know, I, I learned about this in part from my twin 16-year-old daughters who I wrote something pithy on Facebook and was smiling proud of myself. And they're like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm posting this on Facebook. And like, Facebook, it's for old people. We deleted our accounts and they don't care about Facebook at all. It's all Snapchat and Instagram. Yep, I have the same thing. I have a 17-year-old and a 14-year-old, and the only thing they use Facebook for is Messenger, and even that's sort of dubious. They mostly use Instagram for messaging, actually. Yeah, which is weird, but that's... I, I, don't, think I, I don't think I've ever sent an Instagram message. I know uh, I But haven't. they do it all the time. I mean, for them, Instagram is email, which is so strange to me. Each of mine have three or 4,000 emails on their inbox because they're never going to look at it, which is yeah. really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's my son checks email only for Nike store purchase confirmations. That's that's the only reason he would check email. My son's one year ahead of yours, so it's a senior year. So now he's got college stuff coming in. So yeah. he's now got to check. Well, and that's really fascinating too, because you think about colleges and how they're trying to communicate to potential students, and it's still very much website and email. And and I, and and I'm like, you are not giving this the right channel emphasis. And what's funny, when you go talk to them, and we've done some work for some universities, they're like, well, yeah, we just got the website and email thing figured out three <laughs> years ago. We can't you know, switch now. Uh, and there are some great colleges. In fact, Indiana University, where I live, is terrific at Snapchat. And Christina Moravec, who, who runs their account, is really, really good at it. But it's not really for matriculation necessarily, right? It's more for you know current students to follow along. I'm sure you know prospective students look at it too, but it's not really built into the recruiting process. And that's what you have to do, right? It needs to be like, hey, if you want to get a brochure about the university, then, you know, send us this emoji and we'll give you one, yeah. you know, in a, in a series of five second videos or whatever. But professional university enrollment, people are like, you're blowing my mind. So well, you, someday. My kids, they want to see a video. Yeah. They don't want to see a brochure. But Nobody wants to read. I mean, walk me through the experience. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the worst, you know, worst job in the world right now is high school English teacher. Because, you know, you're, you're basically putting a square peg in a round hole eight hours a day. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about your book, Hug Your Haters. So I've got a bunch of questions here from the book. But I, I want to start with a, a definition because I write and publish a blog post every day, which I've done for six years. And I've found a way to find haters and trolls. And if you do this, if you do what you do or what I do, you're going to end up with some people who, because you have some point of view, they're going to disagree with that point of view and want to make that known. So tell me what a hater is. Well, in the parlance of the book, a, a hater is really anybody who complains. It's not necessarily a troll. We talk about trolls in the book. We define them as the crazies. But when we say hug your haters, what we really mean in the parlance of the book is answer your complaints. 
But Answer Your Complaints is a terrible book title, which is why it's Hug Your Haters, right? And so certainly there are, there are lots of different levels and intensities of disagreement and complaints versus, you know, outright trollism. But, but the advice and the counsel in the book is, is, is really about being better and more comprehensive and more proactive about replying to customers and about customer service in general, because customer service is being disrupted in the exact same ways and for the exact same reasons that marketing has been disrupted. It's the same thing we were just talking about, right? It's mobile, it's social, it's millennials. It's the same story that we've already seen for marketing. It's just now happening in customer service. The problem is everybody talks about that in marketing. Nobody talks about it in customer service. It's an interesting point you make, and I think you just coined the word trollism. I don't know if that's really a word <laughs> yeah, or not. I think it is now. You just made it's that like up. like elephantitis. It's the same kind of thing. <laughs> The idea of hater, though, what strikes me about the word that you chose to do that is that some of the examples in the book, there's so much vitriol, you know, and because there are people who are clever and are good writing and good thinking, and now that you put this toolkit in their hand, so the level of complaint now is almost an art form, right? Yes. It's, it's something completely different. Here's what's funny about that, though, and we really researched this, and this book is, is driven by extensive proprietary research that I put together exclusively for the book. You know, most business books, mine, yours, everybody else's, are, are largely a collection of advice and anecdote. I mean, that's how, the, how, how it works. But nobody wants to read a book about customer service because everybody thinks they're already good at it. And so I realized that I couldn't just tell people that they needed to get better at customer service. I had to prove it. And so put a lot of time, effort, and money, frankly, into the research so that everything we talk about in the book, Hug Your Haters, actually there's real data behind it. And one of the things we discovered is that the reason why you see all this kind of vitriol and these very extensive, amazing reviews and Facebook posts and tweets is because in customer service online, those customers are competing for attention the same way that businesses are competing for attention with one another, right? They're, they're fighting through the morass of other tweets and Facebook posts and Yelp reviews and everything else. And so you don't often see the same kind of creativity, frankly, in somebody's email or in their telephone call because they don't have to be creative because they know if they send you an email, you're going to get it and reply. I want to go back to one part of that that I wanted you to take a deeper dive in because I think this is important. I'm a sales guy, and it's really interesting to me that I watch companies do a really good job at customer acquisition and a terrible job at, at client retention. And you point out the fact that the money spent is disproportionately spent on acquisition it's crazy. and not on retention. And that you might not need to spend as much on acquisition if you would spend a little bit more on the other side. So there's this gap that you talk about early in the book between what a company believes their customer experience is like and what their customers actually believe yeah. their experience scores. So if you could talk yeah. about that gap in the numbers and explain how are we this far <laughs> apart from each other because the numbers that you have in the book – we're not on the same planet. It's remarkable. This research was originally conducted by Bain, and they found that 80% of American businesses say that they deliver superior customer service. Superior. 8% of their customers agree. So Somebody's wrong here. Some, it reminds me of the stat that 91% of people think they're exceptional drivers. <laughs> 
right? It's like, okay, that can't be true. <laughs> and it's really quite, quite shocking. But you know, look, I've been in business a really long time. I mean, I've been a consultant for 20 plus years. I've never walked into a conference room and somebody sits there and says, you know what our problem is? We're terrible at customer service. Like nobody ever says that. Even companies that are obviously terrible at customer service don't think they're terrible at customer service. It's like a reality distortion field. It's really, really strange. And, and so we have this massive gap. Now, one of the reasons that's so is because of this resource allocation issue that you mentioned. Each year globally, at least when I did the research for the book, we spent about $500 billion on marketing worldwide and about $9 billion on customer service. Now, that's an enormous difference. I mean, that is, that is extraordinarily different it, it, in terms it, it of its scope and scale. It makes the customer service investment almost zero. Like yeah, comparison. comparatively yeah. speaking, yeah. And and frankly, it has been treated almost like zero for a long time. I mean, look, I, I'm not speaking out of school here. I mean, for generations, customer service has been a necessary evil and nothing more. For generations. And that's mostly because, realistically, for a really, 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 really long time, there was no great benefit to being terrific at customer service. Let, let's say you're disproportionately good at customer service and you make a customer really happy. Well, you're going to keep that customer and that's great. And there's some revenue impact on keeping an individual customer. And that one customer may be delighted and, and he or she may tell the few people that they see at work or the people they see at their church. But, but how big is that ripple effect? Not very. Simultaneously, the penalty for being terrible at customer service has been largely minimized for generations because you upset a customer, you lose them, they tell a few people that you suck, but how many people can they tell? But now that customer service is moving online and customer service is largely becoming a spectator sport, the balance of power has totally changed because now when you make that customer happy, that customer can tell a lot of people online. And when you make that customer unhappy, that customer can tell a lot of people online. So the financial benefits to being good at customer service are much greater than they ever have been. And the financial downfalls of being terrible at customer service are much greater than they've ever been. But yet, most companies, per the research, and I think just per being alive on this planet, will tell you that most companies have not figured out that this shift has occurred. I'm going to give you an example of that from my world in a minute because I'll share this with you, and I think you'll like the story and you'll have a lot to say. It'll be a good segue for you to talk more about that. Why do most companies, I'll call them sales organizations because that's my world, and every organization is designed to create a customer and take care of them. Why do we tend to just ignore complaints? There's a number of reasons for it. In some cases, complaints simply aren't found, especially now that you've got this massive proliferation in the places that people can complain. In some cases, it is resources, right? You just don't have enough arms and legs to, to handle them all. But I think generally, it's more of a either I don't want to hear it. I, I just I don't want to be around negativity because I don't feel like that's something that I want to embrace. And I think in many cases, there's this belief that, well, you know what, if that customer's unhappy, screw them, we'll go get another customer, right? There's just, there's just a lack of value placed on customer retention, even though we all know, like you learn this in the first day in business, hell, you learn it by lunch in the first day in business that mathematically, right, it makes sense to keep customers yes. instead of having to replace them. Like we, there's no counter argument. No one's going to say that's not true. We all know that to be true, but we clearly do not run businesses by that same principle, even though we know it to be true. We 
hyper-value customer acquisition, and we hyper-undervalue customer retention, and it has always been the case, partially because customer acquisition is way more interesting. Well, I've seen it in businesses where a sales organization will say, let's just take a small company so I can use really easy numbers. They're doing $10 million, and they say next year we're going to go from 10 to 2. And then somebody has to show them, you churned $3 million. So you might be able to get two, but how do you get five? Right. And then exactly. they go, well, I, I have no idea how we would get five. This is why you can't grow, because you, yeah. you don't recognize that you're not adding. You're simply replacing what you're churning. Yeah. And so my question is always this, and I, I think you answer some of this in the book in a couple of different ways. Why do you want to go get a new customer that you can neglect and abuse in the same way you neglect and abuse this customer? Why not just keep this one? Unless you change, you're just going to continue to churn out these people anyway. Yeah, and, and why would you even, until you have that sort of metaphorical leaky bucket solved, why would you even emphasize acquisition? Because you're just running in place. And, yeah. and I hear it every single day when I talk about the book. People say, well, Jay, what you're asking us to do, which is to answer every customer in every channel every time and to differentiate our business with customer service to go out and be the best in our category, we don't have the resources to do that. And I'm like, that's completely bullshit. Of course you have the resources to do it. You just choose to not deploy your resources that way. Go figure out how much money you need to take from marketing to be good at customer service, do that, and then go do marketing again. I mean, that's not that hard. This isn't rocket science. It's just about it's just about what do you value. Yes. Let me tell you a story. I spoke at a conference at a college, and there was an Ohio-based company there that had this direct sales model. And the people that ordered what they sold would have problems. The orders would be late, they'd be wrong, or they'd be broken when they showed up. And they had a Facebook page, so their Facebook was just a long, I mean, page after page of, I hate you, my stuff is broken, my shipment's still not here. And I was speaking with the CMO, and I mentioned to him, I said, your Facebook page is awful. I mean, there's all these complaints out there that have gone unaddressed. And they're just sitting there. And he said, no, we've taken care of every one of those complaints. We have this awesome customer service department. They've reached out. They've called everyone. Everyone's happy. And I said, well, not on Facebook. They're not. On Facebook, everybody's still miserable and hates you. This is this thing about where the channel's gone. And I, mm-hmm. and you address this in the book. So I, if you could riff on that and share. Yeah. You know, you may not have decided that Facebook's your customer service channel. Of course, but it doesn't matter whether you decided or not. It matters whether your customers have decided. And that story is so perfect because I see it all the time. And and for a couple of things. One, executives are typically a little older. They always think of social media as marketing, if anything. They always think of customer service through the lens of legacy channels. They think of phone and email, maybe postal mail for that matter. Not realizing that their customers have said, oh, well, anywhere this business has a presence, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, Pinterest, you know, is fair game, right? If they have a place there, I can ask them a question. Whether they're prepared to answer that question there or not is immaterial to me as a customer. I'm just looking for an opportunity. I'm just, I'm just looking for a, a way in, especially when one of the challenges we have today is that companies are not any better now than they were 40 years ago at telephone or email support. And so people are like, well, I don't want to wait on hold. That's for suckers. I'm going to tweet them. Well, then if the company's not ready to handle customer support on Twitter, they're just building their own Frankenstein, right? And it, and it happens all the time. Now, mathematically, according to the research we did in the book, about 62% of all complaints in the U.S. today are on legacy channels, phone and email. 38% are social media review sites, Yelp, TripAdvisor, whatever the review sites are in your industry, dealer, rater, there's millions of them, right? And then discussion boards and forums. So 62, 38. 
But that shift is happening really, really fast because it's so much easier for a consumer to complain with one hand in a smartphone than with two hands on a keyboard with an email and certainly easier than waiting on hold. And so just physiologically, people are moving to new public forms of complaint. And then, you know, as you talk about young Americans, they, they're not going to use the phone. I mean, my kids never talk on the phone. I mean, ever and they don't use email either. And, and I don't believe at some point they're going to be 24 and be in their first job sitting in their cubicle and be like, wow, I have totally missed out on the joys of telephonic communication. Like, I didn't even know how great this phone thing was. Like, that's not going to happen. And so eventually, none of your customers are going to use the phone or email. And then what? And so it's very, very common that executives just don't know that this shift has happened. And I got to tell you, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books about marketing disruption. There's now one book about customer service disruption, which is why I wrote it, because it scares me that people aren't talking about this. And the channels do matter. I mean, I think you're right. My kids, their phone is the way that they carry around Instagram and Snapchat. (laughs) That's what that's for. That's the device that you can carry Instagram around with. Yeah, that's well said. And everything's a picture. I am what you would call an offstage hater. Mm-hmm. And I'll ask you to talk about onstage and offstage. I have, I've had an ongoing war with uh, AT&T, who I've got to be their largest customer, with five kids and five iPads. And you know, I have a, an I am- amazing bill with AT&T every month. And they refuse to help me on the phone, even though they'll spend hours of time trying not to help me because no one's empowered to do anything. Yeah. And a tweet, when they see I have like 50-some thousand Twitter followers, gets a phone call to me. Yeah. You know, because the the channels changed and they noticed that if you actually could complain on stage, it's more valuable for them to correct the on stage than the off stage. Because I'd prefer, I'm 48, I'd prefer to be off stage and I'd prefer to talk like a business person to another business person and just solve a problem. And I'd be willing to pay to have the problem solved. But it doesn't work that way. There's just no one empowered unless you go to that other channel. Can you just quickly speak to on stage and off stage? Because yeah. I think this is an interesting place for people to think about what they're looking at when they get the customer complaints and how to think about it. So when we think about off stage haters, how we define that in the research are people who use legacy channels, so phone and email. On stage haters are people who complain in public, social review sites and discussion boards and forums. Demographically, they're actually fairly similar. Uh, Offstage haters are slightly older, as you might suspect. They are slightly less technology savvy, less likely to use social media. But, but really, those demographic differences are not as significant as I actually thought they would be. The biggest difference is expectations. So when somebody complains on the phone or email, they expect, as you do, they expect a reply. 90% of the time, they expect a reply. And that's just how business has evolved, right? If you, if you leave a voicemail or you email, you expect a business to get back to you. That's just how it works. However, when you complain on stage, social media, Twitter, Facebook, Yelp, etc., you don't necessarily expect to reply. Only 47% of the time do you anticipate a business to get back to you. Why? Because most businesses don't. I mean, most businesses ignore some or all of their customers in these digital channels. And in most cases, it's not an accident. It's a strategy. It's not a, it's not a bug. It's a feature. And so what happens is that in social media, certainly in sometimes people use Twitter, for example, as a last resort. It was too long to wait on hold. And so I decided to tweet you instead. Like that kind of channel shift happens all the time now. But in a lot of cases, people are just sort of sounding off on businesses and social media, not necessarily expecting those businesses to answer because most businesses don't. And that's a huge and enormous opportunity for all businesses because when you do answer those onstage haters, it blows their minds 
because they don't expect it, right? It's like getting a proactive phone call. You're like, oh my God, I can't believe you guys actually what, listened. You know, what, what is a proactive phone call? I don't, yeah. I'm not even sure about this. This is a yeah. unicorn. What is, it, what is this thing you're about? talking about? Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and that's, it's a huge, it's a huge thing that's going to happen in customer service. I'm really excited about the trends of predictive service, right? We talk a lot about big data, but most of the time we talk about big data for sales and marketing. Yeah. I'm really excited about where we're going to head in the next three to five years with big data for predictive service, where we can say in a circumstance like yours, AT&T will be able to mine your data and say, look, we're pretty sure this customer is going to have an issue. So let's contact him or make a bill adjustment or do whatever we need to do before he realizes it's a problem, right? And there's a lot of very smart people working on those kind of things. And I'm excited to see where we end up. It's interesting to me about the on-stage haters because a lot of it, it's only 47% that expect a reply. I think part of it's because they're on stage. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to say something pithy and witty at your expense. But I think it's important to think about the risk for businesses who leave those unanswered because it seems to me that there's this wake of negativity behind them. Yep. You know, and so as people come onto the trail, they look at them and think, well, oh, this company sucks. I mean, look, everybody hates them. They don't even reply. And what you're saying, and you say this in the book, is that by not replying, you're basically saying, I don't really care what you think. Yeah, no response is a response. So I'm looking at you now, and I'm considering you, and what do I see? Well, you don't really care that much. Okay, well, that's the one thing that I want you to do is care about me, and you're telling me you're not going to. And in some cases, businesses say they don't want to reply because the customer has it wrong, that it's not true. And it doesn't matter. If it's out there on the internet and you don't reply, it becomes true, whether it's true or not, right? It's there. People can read it. And the other thing that businesses tend to not understand well enough is that the atomic half-life of some of this commentary is really long. Like if you leave a Yelp review, TripAdvisor review, any sort of review on a review site or any sort of discussion board or forum post, people can see that for years. And it shows up in Google searches very well because all those sites are indexed very highly. And so you can have a customer who takes a bite out of you and you choose to not respond thinking, I'm not even going to get into it. That customer's a liar anyway. And now prospective customers see that review year after year after year after year. It is very much a foolish endeavor to say our policy is that we don't respond to negativity. It's like, okay, well, would your policy be that you don't answer the phone call unless it's positive? I mean, it'd be like, you know, you answer the phone, hello? Yes, I'd like to have a complaint. And you just hang up the phone because, you know, we only take positive phone calls. So really, no negativity your, here. Yeah, that's your no. strategy. But that's exactly, I mean, literally, that's exactly how it works in social media for a lot of brands. It's crazy. I, I want to just point out how smart people from the Midwest are. Jay found a way to work into the atomic half-life into uh, a podcast conversation. There you go. It's got to go. be a first. Ring the bell. You make the case that there are four business improvements that come from hugging your haters. And I won't walk you down all of these, but I do, I do like for people to understand how actionable this is. You say you turn bad news good, you create customer advocacy, you're gathering insights and intelligence, and you're differentiating. Go back to something you said earlier, if you wouldn't mind just riffing on this for just a minute. You said respond to every single complaint in every single channel, regardless of what it is. Can you talk about the importance of that and how that helps you get the improvement that you really can gain and what your research and evidence shows about the difference in the business when you do this? Well, what we found is that answering a customer complaint increases customer advocacy. And that happens every time and in every channel. Now, how much it increases advocacy differs by channel, but it happens every time. What's the best channel? 
the best channel is discussion boards and forums. Okay. It's 27%. Social media is 25. Review sites is 25. Now, where you get less of a benefit, less of a bonus, if you will, is telephone and email. Because if you send a business an email and they email you back, you're not like, hell yeah, they emailed me back. No way. I'm totally fired. I mean, they, you know, again, it's an expectation management issue. So it still helps, but it doesn't help as much. So if you answer a complaint, it increases advocacy every time. If you don't answer a complaint, it decreases advocacy every time. Every time. It takes a bad situation and it makes it worse. So... Again, the variances are different by channel. It's almost flipped. So you get pretty bad results if you don't answer a phone or a phone call or email. It's, it's a 50% drop, something like that, which is pretty significant. But even if you don't answer a tweet, even though a lot of people don't expect it, they say, they still don't like it if they get ignored. So the drop is pretty, is pretty huge. So there is a meaningful difference in customer loyalty, customer advocacy when you answer complaints versus when you don't. And in fact, there's lots of research out there from lots of different people, including me, that says customers who have a problem that has been successfully solved are way more loyal and purchase way more than customers who never had a problem at all, right? Do, do so there's think, like a Stockholm syndrome effect there or something. Yeah. Well, you cared enough. I mean, yeah. I think if you cared enough, that that means a lot. Do you yeah. think that this is a lot of this is that businesses and, you know, people have been writing about this for, I mean, I, maybe going back to like clue train about the transparency, how it's all going to be seen. And now it is. And so the bonus comes when you're just transparent enough to say we botched that up. We're really yeah, sorry. Own it. Just own you know, it. And, right? and sometimes we botch things up and we probably will in the, in, in the future. And we're going to try to take care of you. Yeah, I mean, the humanity and empathy part of this, which I talk about a lot in the step-by-step parts of the book, are really huge. One of the things that big companies don't do very well is try and put a human face on customer service. Even though there's literally a person on the other end, they don't do that very well. They don't let their humans act like humans. And it's a huge mistake, right? They don't let them use their names. They don't let them work off script. You know, th- this ability to just be like, yeah, on behalf of the company, we're sorry. But you know what? You're dealing with me. My name is Mike, and I'm going to take care of you. It makes a tremendous difference in how people are interpreted. I mean, the, the curse of scale is that quality declines the whole way up. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's one of the things very, that, very hard. Yeah, I mean, speed is also the enemy of empathy in many cases, right? Yeah. That, that you've got to be fast, especially in social. And so what happens as a, as a practical matter is that companies say, well, we don't have time to answer everybody with a custom reply, or we don't have the resources, which yeah. means we don't put the money against it. So what we're going to do is we're going to take these five pre-approved responses that legal has blessed, and then we're going to say, copy and paste one of these five that's closest to what you would actually say, right? And so then you've got this poor customer service guy who's like, well, this isn't really on point, but closest is C. So he copies and pastes answer C into this uh, Twitter or Facebook or Yelp or whatever. It's just a robot, right? And copy and paste, by definition, lacks empathy. And uh, in some cases, you're doing more harm than good. I think there's really two business strategies that are evolving, and you're going to pick a side. You're either going to care and you're going to be a high care organization that does these kinds of things and takes care of people, or you're going to be a low care where you're going yeah. to transact like that. And so you're going to copy and paste in the response, you know, pick one through five, whichever one you like and send that one. And I think that the people who are going to do best in the future, if they want a strong business and a profitable business, are going to have to pick the care side, which is why I liked your book so much. I think it's about which side of this equation do you want to be on. If you want to be on the transactional side, there's a high penalty to pay for being there. 
it's a really smart point, I think, and I haven't thought about it that way about those two poles, but I couldn't agree more now that you put it out there. And and I would also argue that the middle is terrible because the middle's terrible. Because it you, there are costs associated with being even good at customer service, but if you're not willing to be great, then those costs are probably not well spent. Right, you're, you're probably better off being great at customer service and using that as marketing. And in many ways, I believe customer service is the new marketing, and I talk about that in the book. So you should either try and be great and use it as a differentiator, as a true fulcrum, or say, you know what, it's not our thing, and let's just take all the costs out of it. And in fact, in that case, what you should do is disconnect the phone and say, we don't do phone support because it's by far the most expensive. We only handle customers on email and Twitter and say, we're going to be low touch and go that way and try and win with cost effectiveness. And and presumably, if you've got a low cost of customer acquisition, you can probably succeed in that model. There are the people theory. who do it now. Of course. Yeah. I'll tell you one quick story and then I've got a, a like a lightning round of questions for you. I have a, a friend. I saw him last week and he's got a new bag. And I said, that's a really nice bag. What is that? And he said, it's Cartier. And I'm like, Cartier, wow. I'm like, that's got to be like twenty four, twenty five hundred dollars He goes, $3,400. It's a small bag too. And he said, uh, it's an interesting story. I tried to buy a bag from Prada while I was in Vegas. And I really like the Prada bag. But when I went up to buy the bag, the person checking me out, the cashier or the clerk, she said, first, I have to read you this language about the return of this bag. And she started reading it to him. And he said, so, okay, so basically you don't cover anything. And she said, you interrupted me. Let me finish. And wow. so, yeah, that's what he thought. Wow. Like I'm trying to buy, in this case, it was a $2,400 bag. So she finishes and he says, okay, that's fine. He said, I'm from Ohio. So I'm going to give you this credit card. And because we're not at Target in Cleveland, it's not going to go through. You're going to have to swipe it a second time after the bank calls me. And she swipes the card and she says, I'm sorry, it didn't go through. You'll have to give me another card. And he said, well, I just told you that was going to happen. And my phone's ringing now and it's the bank. Can you run the card again? And she said, no, we have a policy against running the card again. And he (laughs) said, well, go talk to (laughs) Yeah, it's a funny story already. So he said, go ask your manager. And she said, my manager said we can't take another card. So he says, okay, I'm not buying the bag. And he walks back to the Cartier store and they greet him and say, have a seat. Would you like white wine or red wine or can we get you something else to drink? And he gets a white wine and he explains to them, I was trying to buy this bag. And they said, sir, listen, you don't have to tell us the story. Just give us the card and we'll take care of it for you. And he hands the card over and they come back and say, we called the bank. The bank's expecting the transaction to go through. Everything's taken care of. Can we get you anything else? It's just two ways to treat people. And, yeah. and one as a $3,400 purchase was $1,000 more and a different experience. And I think that part of this is how how are you going to treat your customers and what do they mean to you? And if you're going to grow a business, your business grows with the acquisition and retention of customers, not just with the acquisition. You need both of these pieces working together. Well, and, and what people don't think about enough is what is the downstream impact of that choice? So obviously, it impacted him and you had what ends up being a $5,800 swing in that category. Now, that's important right? $1,500 or $1,500 as a swing. But what's more important is that the experiences that he encountered were so great on one hand and terrible on the other hand that it compels word of mouth. Yeah. And what people talk all the time in business about great customer experience, but we never define it. And I'll tell you what it is. Great customer experience is when something happens that is so different than your expectation that it compels you to talk about it. You cannot help yourself. Word of mouth is built into it because you're just flabbergasted, both good and bad. And what businesses fail to accurately model, partially because it's difficult to model financially and mathematically, 
is what the impact is of him telling you, you telling me on a podcast. On a podcast, yeah. Sorry right? about so that. So now you think product. about so now you think about okay, now now what is the potential impact of that? both negatively for Prada and positively for Cartier. Now, it's really hard to put a pin in that unless you do some very custom word-of-mouth research, which is all possible. It's just cumbersome. But usually, we just think of customer service and customer experience at the transactional layer, not the downstream amplification layer. And that's, frankly, why customer service is under-resourced, because we only model it at the individual transaction level, not what happens after, 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 after. Prada called Jay Bear for help. Here's, yes, here, here's, I'm happy to do it. Here's, here's the lightning round. What are you reading right now? I just ordered, because I heard a podcast about it, actually, a really interesting book called The Arm. And it's the history of pitching in baseball and pitching injuries and Tommy John surgeries and all that kind of stuff and how young kids are being pitched too often in summer ball and those kind of things. I'm a, I'm a big sports nut, so I'm interested to see what that's all about. I remember seeing on your Hug Your Haters page, you would take people to a baseball game for X number of books. Yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. What's the most important book you've read and why? Wow, that's a tough question. Most important book I've read ever. One of the most important books to me that I've certainly read recently because it really changed the way I think about a lot of things is uh, Procrastinate on Purpose from my friend Rory Vaden that really taught me a lot about time management and how to emphasize things that really matter both in my business and in my life. He's got a really interesting and different approach to multiplying time and it was really useful. I think it's a, it's a really important. I haven't read that book, but it's an important idea. I respond to all of my emails and I get my inbox to zero on yeah. Saturday and Wednesdays. And the rest yeah. of the time, email's not my job. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's not what I do. Yeah. If you'll like that book, for people who are busy, it's an exceptional book. If you're not a super busy person, like I don't get it. But if you're really busy and you're always doing stuff, it is, I think, the best in the world at that concept. Who has had the biggest influence on your thinking? You know, it depends because I do a lot of different things. But, but I'll tell you from the consulting side, the guy I worked with when I was an intern, I was just a kid. I was 18 years old, freshman year of college, and I was an intern at a public affairs firm in Phoenix called Nelson Ralston Robb. And my boss there was the COO, Bob Robb, who's now an editorial page columnist for the Arizona Republic newspaper. And he called me in like on my first or second day. He said, look, I know you've never been a consultant before because you're a kid, but let me tell you something. Our job as an agency and as advisors to companies is to give them our best professional advice. Their job is to decide whether or not to take it. And that has served me very, very well for almost 30 years. You cannot want something for somebody who does not want it for themselves. It's true. Yeah, it's hard. What's the most important lesson you've learned in life? I actually have a sign right on the other side of the monitor here that I position importantly so that I can always kind of glance up at it when I'm not looking at my computer. My mom got it for me years ago, and I've always kept it in my office. And it says, remember, some days you're the pigeon and some days you're the statue. Uh, and I live by that principle because if you're in public as I am and as you are, some days people are going to be cheering you and some days you're going to encounter haters. And it's important to try and keep that even keel and not let it get to you either way. If you weren't writing, speaking, and consulting, what job would you be doing? I'd be doing the same job for free. I would do this job for nothing. I'm glad I don't have to, but I love every day of it. If I could pick a job, I would do one of two things. I would either be a tequila sommelier, because I'm a, a tequila collector, a big fan of tequila, fascinated by it. it I don't think like, there's such a thing as a tequila. There is. There absolutely <laughs> is. is. There? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And tequila is, is like the customer service of drinks. And that is, it is chronically underappreciated. I'd either be a tequila sommelier or I'd be a columnist for Esquire. 
<laughs> That'd be a good gig. What do you hope to be remembered for? I hope that ultimately people say that I was able to take complex, sophisticated business principles and document them, but translate them in a way both in books and on stage and in podcasts that a large swath of business owners and managers could understand and put into practice. I don't feel like my role is to come up with ideas. I feel like my role is to translate ideas in a way that people can understand it and actually act upon them. And I hope that someday that's what I'm remembered for. I I think that's the reason I would recommend to hug your haters is because it is an action-oriented book. There's plenty of research and there's plenty of theory, but there's a how-to and an action bias to it that makes it worth looking at. Thank I mean, you. That, that's a, and I think that's what you were going for. Yeah, and we also, you know, I, I try to really cultivate the examples carefully too, right? So there's not a lot of the usual customer service chestnuts in there and very much tried to tick the boxes. So we've got small companies and big companies and B2B and B2C and US and global so that people can't buy the book and say, oh, I don't see myself in these stories. I very intentionally crafted it. So you should be able to see yourself no matter who you are and what you do in the book. And I put a lot of effort into cultivating and curating those stories and those examples and the interviews to make that a reality. Thanks for being here, Jay. Uh, My pleasure. I loved it. Let's do it again sometime. He is Jay Bear, and you can find him at jbear.com. And you can also go out and check out Jay's firm, Convince and Convert. And I'll tell you why I'm sending you there. They do keep a blog. It's an extremely active blog with multiple contributors. And it really is another blog that you can go read for actionable content, especially if you care about blogging or you care about creating videos. You're going to get content there that you can immediately apply. So I'm sending you there because it's worth looking at. And of course, go out and buy a copy of Hug Your Haters. It's a great book. And the case studies in this book, by the way, are very entertaining, and uh, they're unusually entertaining. You're going to enjoy reading it. Again, jbear.com, convince and convert, and also hug your haters. You'll find all these in the show notes. This episode of In the Arena was sponsored by Sales Gravy University. You know I'm good friends with Jeb Blunt, and you know he does great work, and you know he wrote Fanatical Prospecting, but you may not know that he created Sales Gravy University. And what is Sales Gravy University, you ask? And it's a great question. Sales Gravy University is sales training in your pocket. What you're going to get is an innovative training app that's going to help you accelerate your sales performance and improve your income, and it's in your pocket. It's on your phone, whether that's an iPhone or an Android phone. You can go out to the iTunes store and download the app, or you can go to the Play Store and download the app there. Here's what you're going to get. You're going to get the platform when you sign up, and you're going to be able to buy what you want. There's going to be in-app purchases there for you. You can purchase some courses for 99 cents, and that might be a short video, a tutorial, or an audio program. You're also going to find something that costs more. I think I have a program on there for $9.99, and it's how to plan a sales call. It's four modules. It's probably close to 25 minutes long, and it's content to help you set up success when you're going to do the most important thing that salespeople do, and that's go sit down face-to-face with a client or a prospect. Here's what I love about this platform, and this is where I think Jeb's genius comes in. 
This is spot training. So you're in your car, you've got a problem, you're going to go out, you're going to watch a video, you're going to read a tutorial, or you're going to listen to an audio track, and you're going to come up with the ideas that you need to succeed when you're sitting down with that customer. Or maybe this is part of your personal development and your growth, and you're going to listen to one module every week, and you're going to work on that module, and then the next week you're going to pick up something else and grow from there. Go check out Sales Gravy University. You can Google it, and you'll come up with the iTunes preview as the second link. You'll also find the link in the show notes or go out to the Play Store and search for Sales Gravy. I promise there's nothing else in the world called Sales Gravy and only a Southerner like Jeb Blunt who rides horses and eats steak and probably drinks whiskey is going to call something Sales Gravy because to a Southerner, nothing is real unless you can put gravy on it. Go check it out. When you get there, tell Jeb that I sent you and do check out the sales call planning module there. I think you'll love it and I think that you're going to find it super helpful when you go in to make a sales call. I am Anthony Anarino, and you can find me at thesalesblog.com. When you go there, you're going to be assaulted by a pop-up banner when you try to click on something or when you try to leave, and that's so that I can get your first name and your email address. I'm going to send you every Sunday morning content that you can use in your sales game or your business game or your success game. That's long form, actionable, something that you're going to be able to look at Monday morning and say, I've got ideas and I can get to work improving myself and my results. Also, go visit me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. Do subscribe there where I'll send you video content, me talking into the camera, sharing ideas with you or interviewing other people. Thanks so much for being here. I'll see you next time right here in the arena.